also one of the things we were able to track was the extent to which church-based religion shifted mm -hmm. to what extent it did and to what extent spiritual non-church-based spiritual seeking and spiritual practice emerged so it was neat in that sense that one could actually longitudinally track this phenomenon of cultural religious and cultural change that there is so much about in the literature but not necessarily a lot of data to support its evolution that was today's guest dr michelle dillon the university of new hampshire class of 1944 professor of sociology and dean of the college of liberal arts here at unh my name is mark bonica and i am an associate professor in the department of health management and policy at the university of new hampshire and you are listening to flourishing in the world a podcast exploring what it means to live a worthy life dr dylan is an internationally renowned scholar on the sociology of religion in this podcast, we talk about her research on religion and spirituality through the life course, as well as institutional change in the Catholic Church. While we speak at length about the Catholic Church, I think that conversation generalizes well to not only other religions, but other social organizations. Dr. Dillon asked me to note that today's conversation represents her work as a researcher and not in her role as dean. I hope you enjoy this podcast, and if you do, won't you leave us a rating on iTunes, Spotify, Google, or wherever you may be listening, or better yet, share it with a friend. Thanks for listening, and here is Michelle Dillon. Welcome to the podcast, Michelle. Thank you, Mark. Happy to be here. Religion has long been a source of meaning for humans and how we understand how to live in the world and what, what it means to live a worthy life. So I'm really excited to talk to you today to learn more about your research on religion. Um, you are an internationally known scholar of, of the sociology of religion. How did you come to study religion from a sociological perspective? Well, thanks, Mark. I will... You know, of course, the great thing about sociology is it looks comprehensively at all aspects of society. And in my early years as an undergraduate and even as a graduate student, I wasn't actually interested much in religion. I was more interested in political communication and political culture. But I came to the University of California at Berkeley in 1984 to do my PhD. And of course, that was itself such a, a truly amazing social and intellectual opportunity. It was just so exciting to be there. And very early on in my time, I was struck, here's this beautiful place, really one of the most beautiful places in the world, where people have all kinds of options every day of the week, including the weekends and Sunday. And I really couldn't help but notice how busy the churches and other places of worship were on a regular basis. And that had me really thinking sociologically, because one of the big theories in social science and in sociology in particular is the notion of secularization. And that's something I had done some work with. And basically, secularization essentially says that as societies become more progressive, more liberal in the democratic political sense, more pluralistic, that the power and the authority of religion declines. And I was struck that yet it seems here we are in a very hyper-modern place that religion still matters and also the people were publicly attending places of worship. And so then that further prompted me, a lot of my interests over the years has focused on Catholicism, as you know, and right. I am Catholic and I grew up in Ireland, which in those days, uh, it was a very Catholic society. It has changed quite a lot in the last 20 or so years. But uh, knowing the Catholic tradition the best, 
one of my questions then became not only why is it that people continue to identify as Catholic and to go to church, but above all people, why in particular do those who are in a sense objectively stigmatized in church teaching, gays and lesbians, for example, feminists, why are they also still participating in the church? And so that became an anchoring question that has driven a lot of my research over the years. Um, so, so that's really it was really seeing how vibrant American religion is, or religion in America is, and that's and that is um, I, there are, uh, uh, in the Western world. America has some of the highest church attendance, isn't that correct? Correct, uh, absolutely. It has. It, it's absolutely it has the highest. You know, certainly compared to Western Europe and. Uh, Back, you know, even in the 1990s, Ireland and the U.S. would, in a sense, be competing for that label. But secularization has taken such hold in in Ireland in the last 25 plus years that really America, even though America, too, has seen a lot of change in regard to religion, uh, America really does stand out uh, as being an exception. Well, let me just ask a couple. I want to touch on uh, some of the of your books. I've made notes on a couple of your books. Um, but I wanted to ask before we dive into that a little bit about sociology and, you know, what do sociologists study and try to understand? And then, in, and then maybe applying that to religion, like how is, how is the sociological study of religion say different than, and you mentioned like economics um, and, and, you know, the neoclassical approach to uh, uh, neoclassical economic approach of modeling, how is sociology different than say, economics or political science how is it how is how is it going to take a different approach well really what sociology contributes in my view is it's to look comprehensively at all the main sectors of society so rather than focusing let's let as economists do on the economy and supply and demand sociologists would see the economy as a very important but not the only part of everyday life and of social structure and so sociologists would look at the economy and say how is economy related to issues of structural inequality social classes the role of the family the role of politics mass media increasingly of course today social media And so sociology really is looking at multiple layers. I know, of course, in economics, too, we have microeconomics and macroeconomics. But in sociology, you're really looking at how individuals behave in society, but also how groups and collectivities and institutions, how the law operates, how economy operates, how the political arm of of everyday life and of government operates. And so you really are taking this, you know, really a full bird's eye view of the complexity I would argue, of human social life and uh, trying to zero in on how all of these are intersecting and interrelating. One of the things that I had not thought a lot about, I'm a, a, I grew up Catholic uh, as well. And, and you know, going to church as a kid and seeing the priests, I kind of thought of the priests as essentially as theologians, um, which is, you know, reading your books made me realize not, 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 not certainly not necessarily and probably not true uh is that what do what do, how do theologians what is the role of a theologian in, in the study of religion well to your point you know the pre many some priests are trained sure, by, right you know, certainly as theologians but a priest's main job is really that of a pastoral person right so it's this and this is something that actually pope francis has certainly brought a huge amount of attention to over the last 10 years since he became Pope, is that a priest's job is to accompany the faithful. It's to, to, to immerse himself, and they're all 
male. So to immerse themselves in the daily life of the people that they're supposed to be working with. And of course, the role of the priests, you know, the, certainly priests, they have much less perceived and objective authority than they did, I think, in your day and even in America, but also in other countries as well. But nonetheless, they still have a hugely important pastoral slash spiritual role. Uh, whereas a theologian is really the academic arm of the church, the theologians, and there's lots of specializations within theology. But for example, if you look at Catholic moral th theology, really the task of the theologian in those sector, in that sector, is to say, how can we continue to apply the tradition of Catholic teaching and new thinking in Catholic teaching to the contemporary social and sexual issues of the day. So it's an exciting and actually quite influential role. And it's the role of the theologian, in a sense, is to be an advisor if they're used. And they're not often consulted, but to advise the bishops and certainly to advise the Vatican and, and the Roman Curia. So it's, it's really sort of a sort of a division of labor, if you will, that the priest yeah. is the sacramental and the pastoral role and the theologian is really the more the intellectual but an applied intellectual role interesting okay well let's um let's kind of take a quick tour through a couple of your books uh to kind of explore some topics that i i found really fascinating and i wanted to start with uh your your book in the course of a lifetime which you co-authored with your husband paul wink who is a psychologist a social psychologist no, uh, he's he would be described as a personality psychologist. Personality Psychology psychologist. is very specific, but yes, his main interest is adult development. Okay, well, that makes sense with the life course approach yes. of the book. Um, so, in this book, you distinguish uh, you distinguish between religiousness and spiritual seeking, which I found found really interesting. And in my experience, a lot of Americans claim to be spiritual but not religious, so they're kind of making this distinction. Um, and uh, in my travels around America, you know, in the one of the lucky things I had in my career as a as a army officer, so I got to live all over the place, and I found that that kind of dichotomy where people claim to be spiritual but not religious i saw especially like up here in the northeast especially with the educated class uh, but a lot less so in the south and i'm just kind of I, I i guess two questions out of that one is um can you explain the difference between religiousness and spiritual seeking as you used it in the book and then you know why do we see that kind of geographic i don't know if you agree with me uh i i this is a pure like personal observation not a not a not a, not, a, not anything i researched um but do you, do you agree with that do you see that absolutely no what you've just all that you've said are absolutely very you know assumptions very much grounded in empirical evidence. I would say, first of all, of course, it's somewhat controversial. It depends on which discipline you're talking to. But at least in the American context, the distinction between religion and spirituality basically only emerged in sort of popular and scholarly discourse in the 1960s. Okay. Uh, even though, of course, if you look at Eastern traditions or others, what, what's religious and what's spiritual is a whole other sort of conversation. Uh, and what happened, as you know, in the in the American the 60s was really this transformation in culture and social life and not to, uh, you know, put all of this on the baby boom generation. But as we saw the civil rights movements, the student protest movements that sort of shift away from institutional authority, you know, protests against the Vietnam War, lack of confidence beginning to emerge not in, in government, in the military, in all institutions, including mass media institutions and certainly religious institutions. And as part of that movement, uh, really, it was to sort of 
begin to question what does it mean to be part of an institution? And of course, in particular, with regard to your question, religious institutions. And so we began to see the emergence of non-church-based spiritual seeking. Now, of course, spirituality, I would think, should be part of religion. We just talked about the role of a priest. It's to be a spiritual support and advisor. Uh, so spirituality is part of institutional or church religion, but the distinction between religion and spirituality that emerged in the 60s and 70s and then has certainly taken on a lot more uh, accelerated pace for the last several decades is really getting at capturing that distinction that people, individuals in their own minds and in their own practices make between church as an institution and their own spiritual life. Uh, and so that has been a very, very interesting cultural turn in America, particularly in America. You see some evidence of it, too, certainly in Western Europe, but it's a very much an American phenomenon. And when we talk about spiritual seeking independent of church, it's people looking in part at Eastern religions. And of course, with the with the increase in uh, immigrants from Asia that were allowed in with the changes in the immigration laws in the 60s, that propelled some of that. Uh, but also this notion that everyone's on a journey, right? Whether, you know, and this notion that it's self-growth that matters more than participating in social institutions and respect for nature. You know, many would argue that they have, they feel more spiritually engaged out in the woods or kayaking on the river than they do in a church or some other place of worship. Uh, and so that really is how it's used, even though, of course, there's some complexity because many people are, religious and spiritual as they self-identify and many people who go to churches today would still say that they're spiritual not just in terms of church religion but also in terms of feeling close to god when they're out in nature or you know doing something at some nice uh, uplifting musical event for example and then to the other piece why our book in the course of a lifetime was conducive to studying this distinction is that this, the data we use come from a very well-known, certainly in psychology, it was a study at the Institute of Human Development, and it was data gathered of children born in California, in the Bay Area, in the 1920s, and it started out as a prospective study of child development. And of course, it, it just blossomed over the years and was very well funded so that these kids then were followed through adolescence and into early and middle adulthood, and were asked a whole host of questions about all kinds of things, and their parents too, about their lives. And uh, then the study shut down because it ran out of funding, but also many of the researchers uh, had retired and, and some had died. And it was in the late 1990s that Paul Wink, my husband, got a grant to revive that study. And he was interested in looking at it now that these people are in late adulthood, in their late 60s and 70s. At least in 2000, that was late adulthood. I would hope today we, we've we sort of extended that. that there's relatively <laughs> I'm, re I'm with you. I'm ready to push that back <laughs> as far as possible. But certainly it's interesting that even like in 1997, I think when, so when he was writing the grant, that was considered late adulthood, yeah. late 60s, early 70s. And so he got this grant. And as he got it, um, I was finishing up. I think it was my Catholic identity book. And I said, oh, as an interim project, maybe I can do something on the project that's got to do with religion. We didn't even know that there was any data in that data set on religion. And so I started digging through all of these life narratives because they had been interviewed extensively, long, open-ended, structured, uh, semi-structured interviews, uh, in addition to all kinds of survey type questions and paper and pencil tests. And we discovered that there was had been questions 
asked of these people, both in childhood and adolescence and of their parents, and then in these in-depth interviews when they, the people were in their 30s, their 40s and their 50s. And so when we saw that, we, you know, we both recognized this is a much bigger project than, than an article. I thought I might be able to sort of find an article that I could write based on it. Uh, but what it allowed us to do then was to see, could we trace longitudinally? Because it's hard to have, it's very unusual to have such extensive data from a longitudinal perspective in the social sciences because people, you know, it's, it's expensive, but also people move on. It's hard to keep track of them. Uh, and so we were able to track then and see most of these people were brought up in, you know, mainline Protestant or Catholic, most of them were Protestant and some Catholics and had a very traditional you know socialization as teenagers and as children and then you could track how their religious life changed you know when they were they got married you know in the late 20s early 30s or having children of course the women most of them were in traditional roles were not in the labor force and then how they how religion had changed in their lives as they went through middle age and so one of the things we were able to track was the extent to which church-based religion shifted Mm -hmm. or to what extent it did and to what extent spiritual non-church-based spiritual seeking and spiritual practice emerged so it was neat in that sense that one could actually longitudinally track this phenomenon of cultural religious and cultural change that there is so much about in the literature but not necessarily a lot of data to support its evolution thanks i, I was going to ask you to kind of describe the data set what an amazing data set uh, to get get your hands on. One of the things that I found really interesting in reading your approach was that the way you analyze the data, you didn't just rely on people saying, well, I'm religious or I'm spiritual. You looked for evidence that they were actually engaged in practices of either religion, religiosity or spiritual seeking. So somebody just saying, I'm spiritual wasn't enough. You had to be you were out doing something drums. I think you get examples of drum circles or, you know, walking in nature or whatever that they connected. I, I thought that was a very economist way to approach uh, uh, the data just because economists hate um, surveys, generally speaking, because they don't, they, they want proof, not just like, right. right. And so you took that approach. What, what made you decide to take that approach? Well, correct. I was, well, first of all, of course, then my husband did a whole new round of interviews with the people in their sixties and seventies. And we included additional, you know, so the issue, again, going back to the nature of the study, they were asked some of the same questions every time, but a lot of new questions, depending, you know, in the seventies, they were asked different questions, but sure. politics and the where in the fifties or then in the late nineties. And so we included a lot of open-ended as well as self-report questions, but um, you see, I think in general in sociology, and I'm a big user myself of survey data, and I believe in it, but as you have hinted at, survey data is me saying how I feel or what I did. But sociologists also do a lot saying, what did you observing? So at the there's a whole tradition of ethnographic, obser systematic observation research in sociology. It's not about what people say, it's about what people do. You know, when people get together either in church or at a a, a farmer's market on a Saturday morning, what actually happens? Like, what's the interaction? What goes on? And so to me, practices in general, and, and you know, you're absolutely, it's a very good question that you ask, uh, but it really is what do people do? If we want to know what people say about what they do and how they feel and think about what they do, but ultimately it's the practice. And so we were able, there was enough data, but, you know, of this because they would talk, you might be asking them about their family, and they would be talking also about, oh, well, they met with so-and-so and then they went to church or they went in this, you know, and whatever. So that there's evidence scattered throughout the data, throughout the interview of things that then you can actually measure and collate. And so 
even though they mightn't even think of it as a religious practice, it certainly seemed to be something that would have approximated that or a spiritual. So I do think sociology has to look at practices. And, you know, again, you know, early on in sociology, one of the definitions of culture was really the values of a people. You know, what are the values of people in New Hampshire or the US or wherever? And that was often based on self-report data. You know, what do I value, right? But the more contemporary understanding of culture as used by sociologists is really, yes, values and norms matter, but practices, you know, what's the habitus? What are the habits mm -hmm. that they employ every day? You know, people might say they value exercise, but do they actually partake? Right, right. You know, what do they do? Yeah. Uh, so I think that's one of the exciting developments uh, in sociology is to give more attention to practice, even though, as you know, we still just in general rely a lot of, on surveys. Well, I, I don't mean that as a critique. I was just, no. it was, um, it is funny because that that was you know a thing as I'm, as as a, as a trained as an economist you know as a thing that yeah. kind of jumped out at me when I looked at your and and I would just add not to take up too much but it's, there's also a polemical strand in this debate about religion versus spirituality yeah and so some would say oh well it's easy to say I'm spiritual but not religious but what do you do and so we use this high threshold just as if you're religious. You know, usually you do something about it. You go to church or you pray or you know, you do something. And the same with spirituality. That's not just enough to say I'm, I am spiritual, but what what's intentional about your life that re reflects or gives practice to your spiritual aspirations or your spiritual feelings? Yeah, I, I, I was thinking about as I was reading the book, I was thinking about the rise of self-identified evangelicals in the United States in the last like five years. Mm -hmm. And these are people who will tell you they're evangelicals, but they don't go to church. They don't pray. Um, and it's primarily a political identification in, in my opinion. Um, you know, so that's a, I think a, an example of, of that. Um, so one of the things that you document through the interviews and the data that you gathered was that, religiousness for people who were religious their religiousness had a u-shaped uh level of commitment right so tended to be high in their youth and early adulthood went down through the life course and then came back up in late adulthood can you talk a little bit about, so that struck me as interesting because i've been recently reading some of the happiness literature and there's a well-documented u-shape to light happiness through the life course and, and that just kind of I don't know if there's, I don't know if that's just a coincidence or, or what are your thoughts on that? You're, you're smiling. So I, I think you, you, you know it. So. No, I think that's great. I think, I think but that was to us, or to us exciting as well, because we, I mean, a lot of the time we think of religion as being a relatively stable in people's lives. Right. And that makes sense because it's a habit. It's ultimately a social habit to be religious. Yes. There's mm -hmm. theology going back to your, your question under spiritual meaning but certainly in america religion has always been a social habit a social practice and it's really inculcated primarily in the family of origin you know in kids socialized into a particular religious tradition and what the u-curve in our interpretation show that certainly yeah people kids go to religious services and to sunday school because their parents send them right and even though even back you know, the parents of these children born in the 20s, not all of them were that religious. You know, a lot of them didn't go to church themselves, but would, you know, make sure their kids went. It was sort of this old idea, not old, it's, it still resonates that, 
children need some kind of moral socialization and you might as well send them to the local churches anywhere else. I know that's changing a little bit. Uh, and then, of course, when people got married, it's and this has been sort of almost a, a law within sociology of religion, is that when people go to college or the years of their 20s, late teens, early 20s, it's a time of exploration, right? They, they move away from home typically or if they're going to college or they're starting a job. And it gives them time to explore things that they wouldn't have explored otherwise, including what was seen as also a distance from religion. So a lot of the cross-sectional data would show that when people are in their college years, they are less involved. Now, that all has changed now because everyone's less involved, but certainly for most of the 20th century, there was this pattern. But then when they got married and settled down, and that was the language the sociologists would have used and had kids, having children became this trigger for getting back involved in church again because they're replicating their own parent you know their own socialization as children now they say oh well i'm not that religious myself but i better get some kind of exposure for my children to religion and so that really was you'd see this bump in cross-sectional studies that people certainly went to church you know young families and i think you see that today even with the big declines that we're seeing in religion in america right now uh, a lot of places of worship are pretty full at the weekends with young families family you know couples or families with young children but what was interesting then was to see people in their 40s and 50s when the kids, the empty nest, basically, kids are gone from home. And, and looking at the qualitative data in the interviews, particularly for women who were always more religious than men in our study, and that's typical, uh, women said, well, no, I now have more free time for myself and I want to do things that I want to do. I want to play golf or I want to go and meet with my friends. I don't want to go to church. Uh, and so that was sort of, again, that social ambience was driving what it is that they wanted to do. So they had this freedom, just like their kids had freedom in their late teens and college years not to go to church. And they themselves had that. Now with the kids gone out of the home and they had fewer responsibilities towards the children, they gave them this freedom to say, oh, I think I can forget about church for a while at least. Uh, and then of course, in later adulthood, we see you know a resurgence of many of these people back into religion. Partly driven, I think, by time. It's not that they're having, they're not worried about fear. It's not fear of death that's driving it because we've analyzed that elsewhere. Uh, it's really that they've, it's a social. Again, religion is a social event. You go to church, you meet people, there's other activities associated with church. Uh, and so, but it was just exciting to see that, you know, that it's dependent on where you are in the context of your life course and what's going on in your life. So, yeah, do you see a connection? I mean, I raised that question about happiness I, I, it just jumped out at me do you do you have you thought about the connection between those two curves well or is there I, a connection or is it just happens that that's... well no there is i mean there's certainly a huge um you know evidence huge basis of, of empirical studies and we have contributed some to that on showing that people who engage particularly in church-based religion are have a higher life satisfaction now of course the notion of happiness, even though I'm I'm in favor of happiness, yeah. but happiness should also be seen as different from meaning, right? Uh, and in fact, there's a, a famous article, you know, by a, uh, by a psychologist, you know, it's not all about happiness, right? It's about where do you find meaning and commitment? Uh, so obviously, it's good that people are happy, but people can be happy and still have Inter, in you know personal conflicts or openness to other things that may right. take away from some of their happiness and so that's bringing in more of a psychological dimension and so one of the findings in that regard that we have found was that 
religious people like church-based religious people had higher levels of life satisfaction in general and found religion you know religion is a good way for a lot of people to cope with with illness with challenges in their family life you know people believe in prayer and, and they get comfort from that as well as from the social support of the church community whereas the people who were and it was mostly women who were high on spiritual engagement they were, in a sense, the more psychologically complex. They had gone through various interpersonal and intra-psychic conflict in their own life, but had grown, in, you know, psychologically as a result of that. So, um, but certainly there's a, there is a, long, a good literature on the connection between religion and satisfaction. Yeah, I should have said life satisfaction. I mean, happiness is, yeah, it's no. a bit of a loose term, but it, as I understand, psychologists typically break that into life satisfaction and then some sort of hedonic measure of like immediate experiential yeah. ha experiential happiness. So really we're talking about, when we're talking about the U-shape, it's the life life satisfaction yes. um, is has that long uh, uh, long U shape through through adulthood, uh, excuse me, through the life course. So, unlike religiousness, you found spiritual seeking kind of rose through uh, mm. the the life course. It, it, was that a fact of the time? Like we, you said, like uh, you know, this acceptance and opportunity for spiritual seeking kind of emerges in the sixties in the United States. And so, and, and it becomes meaningful to separate the two. Um, so was it a fact of the, was that rising because it was, because that line, it, the, the life course of the individuals in your study literally runs through this is mid court mm -hmm. point is about the sixties. Uh, so was it a fact, was your data influenced by the fact that culture was changing in the sixties and would we see it? What, what are your thoughts on that? Yes, no, absolutely. I think it rose across the life course, I think, because largely because of that confluence of culture changing and the life course itself changing, because certainly the cultural presence of this new spiritual opportunities, new ways to be spiritually engaged, independent of church, and, a, and of course, a whole public discourse about being spiritual. So that's the cultural historical change. And then there is a research literature and psychology that also talks about that as people get older, they become more reflective about life and they become more open to sort of the inner life. And so that's part in a sense of some of what would be defined as spirituality, that people sort of step back from their everyday and reflect in a sort of more transcendent way about the meaning of their life and what they've accomplished. I mean, a lot of this would go back to the, the great work of Eric Erickson, you know, on generativity and, and sort of integration as you get older. So, and of course, it's hard even in a longitudinal study to isolate exactly what's the specific psycho-developmental contribution and what's the cultural but it was very much the interaction over those decades of the aging of the people particularly women and then the the greater openness of the culture to different ideas of spirituality i mean i so i, I guess my question my follow-up question to that would be do do you think the rise in spiritual seeking if we were to conduct this study again using say my cohort of like childhood in the 70s and 80s to through to today you know like would we see because the opportunities were present throughout our our life course that would we see that rising spiritual seeking earlier or is that a function of what you were kind of describing of like you reach a point in your life where you want to integrate you you have you have a drive to integrate and understand what it is that i've been doing of these you know of this time well i think that would be a fascinating study to do because i think what really changes 
religion and spirituality for your generation and successor generations is that the whole decline of religion, right? Well, mm -hmm. you know, so that mm -hmm. for the people in our city, they were really immersed, most of them as kids, deeply in the rel a religious tradition, even though many of them obviously left that particular religious tradition, but they still had grounding in being open to and aware of the sacred. And I think that nicely, if you know, that prepared them in a sense then to avail of some of the new cultural opportunities and discourses surrounding spirituality. I think if you're to look at either your cohort, you know, people who came of age in the 70s and 80s, um, it would probably be a little bit different because I think th those cohorts are already less engaged in any kind of religion slash spirituality. And certainly today's young people who've grown up for the most part in a much more secular American society where there's been very little exposure. Now, this is a larger generalization I'm making, but, you know, increasingly each successive cohort for the last, you know, set of the last 40 years are bringing up their children with less religion than they themselves had. And so I think that has to have an impact on the children's exposure to religion and to the world of the sacred, which in a sense primes them or doesn't prime them to be open to cultural spirit or to spirituality in general. So that's one, this is a typical sociological answer. That's on the one no, hand. That's great. Yeah. On the other hand, of course, yes, people are still aging and people who came of age in the 70s and people who came of age, you know, or coming of age now, they too will eventually have to come to terms with the tasks of later life and navigating, you know, the various existential questions and so therefore spirituality will presumably have some relevance for some people but not necessarily uh you know people can be totally secular and still find great meaning in their lives and certainly can have no problem with aging and with the ultimate mortality uh, so th these are complex questions but i do think the cultural piece is so pertinent when it comes to the city of religion than to look at it in terms of particular cohorts and their life experiences. Uh, it makes it interesting, makes it a complex study, uh, but we do, we're seeing tremendous change right now in the whole landscape of religion in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, I just remember like growing up as a kid, um, there was an, you know, there was always a, a new age bookstore in town that you could kind of mm -hmm. wander in and kind of like look around and like, oh, look at all the crystals and, <laughs> which yes. is, you know, uh, which is sort of this alternative approach to spirituality, right? Like the, these, these businesses were catering to this this in, this interest. Absolutely, absolutely. And so I think then, as you say, if it's more normal as part of your life, and and certainly of current cohorts where there's much more emphasis on that on those sorts of opportunities and resources, and so it may be that younger people today take it all for granted and it's just part of everyday culture just like tattoos you know and of course a mm -hmm. lot of tattoos as you probably know with your students you yeah. know they have a religious basis even though the students themselves are not religious so it becomes sort of piece of cultural artifact rather than religion or spirituality so i just want to clarify a little bit on on when we're religious so religious religious religiousness religiosity is a social experience a social engagement with this with a formal religion and then, and then spiritual seeking is sort of a, a psychological journey and effort to integrate. Is it also to kind of find the divine? Is there a, there's a, it's not just a secular, like, um, it's not a secular, uh, like I'm going to see a psychiatrist and, and, you know, getting, yes, yes. Know, I would say through my childhood traumas, but correct. Yes. I think absolutely for it to be, well, at least in our definition, you know, and different people kind of offer different definitions, but 
there has to still be an element of transcendence. So it's not just you or the individual going on a journey, but the journey has to have some intentionality to connect with something greater than themselves. Okay. I, I was thinking about, and you, you've made the point a couple of times that, you know, you, you can pursue spirituality in the structure of a religious organization. So I, what does that look like? And 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 I want to pose this. My my Polish grandmother, I remember, um, you know, in her 80s and 90s, used to carry a a book of prayer with her in her housecoat, you know, and and she was just kind of always walking around the house praying. Is is that spiritual seeking, or is that just kind of a high level of religious practice? What uh, what does it take to kind of say this person is both engaged in real high levels of religiosity and spiritual seeking? Yeah, well, that's a great question. Well, I would say that uh, that your what your grandmother's practice was highly highly religious, right? Yep. Also spiritual, but different from the spirituality of a seeker, because I think this is where okay. the seeker word becomes important. I think it's probably fair to say that your grandmother's deep religiosity was very much contained within her religious tradition. You know, yes, she and that she wasn't looking the too rosary. much. Yeah, pre, you know the rosary, novenas, that kind yep. of thing. Stations of the Cross, and these are all hugely spiritual encounters, because if you reflect, even if you said them by rote, you know, but it's that encounter with uh, the, the reality of Jesus's life. So that is truly spiritual, but it's within the Christian tradition, within the Christian Catholic tradition, let's say in your grandmother's case. Whereas to be the spiritual seeker engaging in practices that you have to, I think, be familiar with religious traditions, but you have to also be searching beyond the conventionality or the conventions of okay. your own. But these are very complicated questions that you're asking and uh, different people would construe it differently. But it, there is this notion, though, that it is the that you're searching beyond what's already given to you. OK, so you're actively seeking. What about mystics? Right. So so mm -hmm. most of the uh, Catholicism has a mystic tradition, yes. uh, Judaism, Islam, right. Sufism. Yes. Um, those those are all. Is that is 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 this mysticism? Does that fit the spiritual seeking definition or is that still within the context? And so therefore it's not quite doesn't meet your definition as you're using. It. Well, I think, yes, because it's still mysticism is a huge part, as you say, of so many religious traditions, but it's still part of the package. It's part of the not, tradition. In a sense, it's very not, much a well institutionalized part of the tradition. Yeah. Whereas it may be, though, that someone who's not religious in any of those world religion sense uh, is engaged in maybe new age practices or with nature, but then also goes to hear, you know, a Tay's choir or something that really yeah. they find elevates them beyond into something even more mystical. So that would be the difference. So I yeah. feel my grandmother was not burning any incense. There were no crystals. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think, but, but I also should say, this is where you get it. This is why when you make these definitions and the yeah. yeah. you can see that you start getting very picky. And this is what causes a lot of, you know, dinner conversation, you know, yeah. who's religious and who's spiritual. And I would say, if you look, and I know we've talked about the limits of surveys, but if you look at all the Pew Research Center surveys and others by the General Social Survey, a lot of Americans who would be objectively religious, i.e. still going to some kind of church or work, place of worship, are also very open to 
affirmation of the spiritual value of crystals or nature, etc. So right, right. there is a lot of fluidity, I would say, in what is religious and spirituality. But the bottom line would be that the so-called religious is much more tied to the institutional tradition and all that that offers, whereas the spiritual seeker is engaged in practices that take them beyond the walls of a church or a place of worship but still has to have a, some kind of search for a transcendental force or transcendental being. Okay. I wanted to get, just get your, you've kind of hinted at it, but I wanted to get a, clar- a clarifying comment on the value of religiosity. We, you talk a lot about the protective benefits of religiosity. And then what are the, and and that is not necessarily the case with spiritual seekers. What are the benefits of each of those practices? Well, of course, you're you're sounding like an economist now. We're not going to talk about the. I want to the buy cost, these things. The <laughs> well, I think the benefits, and there's a lot of great studies on this, is that re- involvement in religion, whether it's you know prayer, basically, whether it's in you know prayer, private prayer, or in church or in place of worship, or whatever, it's protective as a coping device. So, in fact, there's some medical studies on this. So maybe it brings down your blood pressure and things like that. So that's objectively can be tracked. And then more more prevalent, really uh, more prevalent in, in social sociology is that church typically, or at least historically, has provided people with a ready-made community, a ready-made community of people who a, they can engage with and have you know some kind of friendship and affirmation from, but also that can provide a lot of social support, particularly when they're in times of challenge. If there's an illness in the family, you know, they, people rally around and cook, take turns cooking for someone. And just getting bringing people out of the house, you know, a lot of we talk about volunteering, which is a big piece of religion. Uh, a lot of people today in America volunteer, as you know, and there's still a lot who say, I'd like to volunteer, but don't know where to go about or how to go about doing it. Church historically has been one of the triggers for getting you involved in volunteering, A, because it has a lot of its own activities helping the poor and other groups but also because someone like you maybe who's part of church will come up and say to someone else say hey i'm volunteering for this bike ride to help whoever in a couple of weeks would you like to help out you know registering names or something so it's through that interpersonal network and that of course in turn provides that person with some kind of affirmation and interpersonal sociability and we know from the literature that the more you engage with other people at least in a positive way that that has positive benefits for your health and your mental well mental and physical yeah spirituality is more complex because it's more individuated so yes many spiritual people do collectively go to events you know whether it's a drumming circle or whether it's to a music event but it tends to still be a little more isolating. At least that's what we found in our particular study. Uh, because even when you think of, you know, I'm spiritual in nature, I think the image that comes to mind is someone having a nice walk alone in the woods or up in the mountains, not necessarily in a gaggle of people all talking about things. Uh, and so in that sense, the spirituals may be less open or at least have fewer opportunities compared to their religious counterparts to have this ready-made infrastructure of community and social support available to them. I wanted to shift gears and talk about an earlier book you wrote, which is Catholic Identity. And um, I'm going to say this, and probably I think my father's going to listen to this and he's going to be mad, but he said, I, I think I'm technically probably a lapsed Catholic and that I don't go to church on a regular basis, but I think of myself as a bad Catholic. I really don't, I don't like, 
Um, because I won't give up my Catholic identity, even though I don't go to church all that often. And I disagree a lot with what the church's teachings are on a lot of these topics that really you address in your book, Catholic Identity. Um, so in this book, you really focus on three groups of dissenters. Is that the right way to kind of categorize? Well, no. Uh, well, okay. this is already, you're in trouble already because... I don't call them dissenters. I call okay. them, in a sense, non-assenting. Non-assenters. That's right. You made a point about and, that, and that's an yeah. important point theologically. Well, not to, you know because yeah. part of what that book, or really the most probably significant contribution of that book, is to draw attention to the fact that many Catholics who objectively might be seen as not in tune with the Catholic Church because of their practices or views on issues got to do with sex and gender primarily uh, are seen as not, as not in good standing. Whereas what I do in that book really both from theological and a sociological perspective is to show that in fact, because of the Catholic church's emphasis on faith, but also on reason and the interaction, the conversation between two that individual Catholics have the interpretive autonomy and the interpretive authority to immerse themselves in the Catholic theology and make up their own mind about what is the moral course of action. And so in that sense, and I quote, you know, a a theologian, Francis A. Sullivan, who talks about they're really non-assenting. They're not dissenting and they're not cafeteria Catholics, which I know is another popular term, but they're really these Catholics who are exercising what the Catholic Church actually allows them and requires them to do, which is to use their mind as well as their heart to make decisions about their lives. So what is the significance of the difference between, if you can explain it quickly, like what's, what's the significance of the difference between non-assent and dissent and, and, and assent as well. Right. So, well, I think the larger, and it goes back to your, your introductory comments about your own Catholicism. (laughs) I'm not going to contradict your entitled to self-identify whatever way you want. (laughs) But it seems to me, sociologically, at least, that there are very few bad Catholics. You know, Uh, most Catholics who are lapsed or somewhat lapsed, they're still in the American context and in really the context of contemporary church. They're good Catholics. uh, So most people who identify as Catholic, even if they don't go to church every Sunday, but who still still actively identify as Catholic, because you have the option of saying, I'm nothing. Right. You right, could say right. I'm nothing. When I fill out a form, Roman right. Catholic. Right. Yeah. And, and yep. today, 30 percent of Americans are nothing in particular. Right. So there's a okay. big shift away from having an affiliation. So that's a great freedom that you have. And yet you're not exercising. You're saying, oh, no, I'm Catholic. And then you have all your qualifiers. But I'm a lapsed Catholic. And but I'm a bad Catholic. <laughs> I would say that uh, the fact that you identify a Catholic and want to be part of the Catholic tradition is already a sign that your mind wants to be in your life. You want to stay connected to the community of memory, to the active living community of Catholicism. And then, yes, like most or a large majority, a very large majority of American Catholics, at least since the 1970s with the Humanae Vitae and the encyclical banning birth control, that was really hugely significant because for the first it really showed that american catholics start were using birth control but nonetheless many did leave the church then but many also came back after a period of having left the church and what it conveyed was their commitment to the church and to catholicism 
and yet at the same time to be to their own independent moral judgment, right? So they came back to the church, but they weren't now stopping using contraception. And then we see the same attitude got to do with divorce and remarriage, with gay rights, etc. And so most American Catholics disagree with official church teaching on birth control and on gay rights and on divorce and remarriage, at least the official teaching. Uh, but they still believe in the resurrection and the incarnation of Jesus and all those things and want to go. Many of them want and value the sacraments. In fact, in all the surveys, the reason why people go to mass a lot of, for many people is the sacraments. They feel nourished spiritually and socially by the sacraments. So, um, so that's important because I think unlike, you know, there isn't this orthodoxy. There's no such thing as Catholic orthodoxy from a sociological perspective. And I would say from a theological perspective, I'm not a theologian, but if you look at the whole tradition of Catholic theology, it really is, and certainly looking at Vatican II and what it, the Second Vatican Council, and its emphasis that people have to be able to correct contradictions within the church as in society. And many active Catholics see what they see as contradictions within the church, uh, got to do with some of these issues, particularly got to do with the so-called so sexual morality issues. Um, so then to go back to your question, the non-assent is really Catholics. It's not that they're disagreeing or dissenting for the sake of dissenting, right? They're not protesting. They're not saying, oh, I disagree with the church and I'm a dissenter. But what they're saying is, I want to be Catholic and I am Catholic, but I disagree. I cannot agree. I cannot give my cognitive assent to church teaching that contraception is immoral, artificial contraception is immoral, or that having sex with anyone outside of marriage is immoral, right? And I think we see now with, and certainly with Pope Francis's time and with the current debates, you know, with the Synod on the Family a few years ago and now the Synod on Synodality, that there is an, uh, an effort by the church to try to meet people where they're at in their lives, right? Not, not all, you know, and yet not say that it's not anything goes Catholicism, but you can have a moral life and be a faithful person, but still do certain things that are at least are out of the bounds of current church teaching, you know? So um, that's a, a long answer to your question. And yeah. you can self-identify, but it's, it's self-interesting that you still would identify even as you think of yourself as a bad Catholic. But really in America, good Catholics are Catholics who do identify and who have some relationship with the church. So in terms okay. of still being in touch with the mass and the sacraments, even if it's not as frequently as your you know, parents might have wanted you to be, uh, but also disagree. And that's that's the Catholic, that's the Catholic privilege in a sense, is that faith and reason, right? You're a thinking person. And so as a thinking person who's also a good person, you have to make up your mind about some of these things that impact your own immediate life without necessarily using that freedom to to do bad things to other people. Right. Well, I don't think of myself as a person that does bad things to other people. Right. So I don't like the bad <laughs> Catholic came in. Uh, so you talk, you talk about three groups that I thought were really interesting. Dignity. Women's Ordination Conference and Catholics for Choice. Um, maybe very quickly describe. What are, what are those groups represent and how are they non-assenting? Well, Dignity is a, a national organization of chapters of gay, lesbian, LGBTQ plus Catholics has evolved over the years. And they would have formed, you know, again, the post-Fatican, you know, like the late 70s, early 80s. It was a huge upsurge, just as in the political 
political world, there was a lot of activism in America in the 70s, 60s and 70s. We also saw parallel emergence of that kind of activism within the church. How can we create? And that coincided, of course, with the Second Vatican Council, which was from 1962 to 1965, which was a really transformative event in global Catholicism because it was the church leaders, the Pope called, it was convened by John the Twenty-Third, and then and then followed up uh, by Paul the Sixth, really bringing the world's bishops together to talk about how can the church be relevant for the modern world. So this relevance amid you know the threat of you know nuclear war, amid increasing economic inequality, but also how can it be relevant amid the social challenges and that ordinary Catholic families and individuals have in their daily lives. And so a lot of activism was spurred by these, again, numerous both events within the Church of the Vatican Council and outside the church political activism more generally. And so Dignity and the other two organizations as well formed to try to build a more um, a more inclusive church. And the, the Vatican II had many, many documents. They're beautiful to read. And they talk about the role of the layperson, that it's not about the church knows, the church leaders know everything, that the priests know everything or the theologians know everything. It's ordinary Catholics by virtue of their reason and by virtue of their professional and other uh, experiences and obligations also have a role, have a, have a, should have a voice in the church. And so that spurred activism within the church for more engagement by lay people on a, on a range of issues. And Dignity started out as, or is still, uh, for gay and lesbian, LGBTQ plus uh, Catholics. And so they were a very important piece of my study, because uh, going back to the question, you know, why do Americans stay Catholic? And then why do gays and lesbians who are objectively stigmatized, why can, how can, why can, why do they stay and how can they stay Catholic? And so I did a lot of interviews, personal interviews with many in the Boston area, but also observed, you know, the practices, we're back to the practices here, what did they do? And so they used to meet, uh, you know, in the Protestant church, because they weren't allowed to meet in the Catholic church. And they would have a, a mass typically celebrated by uh, an ex-Catholic priest uh, and and. But the mass was it was really quite. In fact, I found my research to me spiritually uplifting as well as sociologically fascinating. Was that they created a mass that if you walked in off the street, you would think was exactly more or less like the mass anywhere else, which, as we know, is the universality of the mass across the world. But they would add certain, you know, gay identity markers. You know, using the the stole around the priest's neck that actually has the rainbow colors, you know, specifically mentioning gays and lesbians during the mass. And so what they were enacting week after week and was done with such respect and reverence, but they were enacting what does it mean to be gay and Catholic? Because official church discourse, either you're gay or you're Catholic, right? And that's objectively, despite all the changes uh, in with Francis's papacy and a much more push towards inclusion of Catholics, you know, of, of gay Catholics. You know, of course, as you as you probably know, mm -hmm. you know, same sex marriages can't be blessed by the church, never mind have weddings in the church. Uh, so they were really enacting what it means to be gay and Catholic and given permission to others to to really come out as gay and Catholic. And in, in my interviews with so many, they brought up the fact that they were brought most of them were socialized, grew up in heavily Catholic families, you know, who were very practicing and they saw a lot of the positives of the church on social justice and all of that. 
and then really couldn't cope with having to give up their Catholicism. So this was because they were gay. So they didn't, rather than confronting this choice, be gay or a Catholic as the church was teaching or is teaching, even though it's modified it, uh, they were able to craft this identity to say it's fine to be both. Uh, and so that that was, you know, and that then goes back to the interpretive autonomy you know, they have the authority to to assess the morality of their own lives, even if some of their identities and behaviors are at odds with what official Catholic Church would argue or state is what it means to be a good Catholic. And then you had the Women's Ordination Conference, which advocates right. for women's ordination. I guess. And then, the so that, yeah, so that's another, and they're still advocating for women's ordination. And yeah. uh, you know, that's a long, you know, women and, you know, this interesting, and I've, I have, these are themes that have informed a lot of my research, including my most recent book on post-secular Catholicism, uh, because the church is teaching on gender, you know, the church is one of the first institutions to say that sexism is a sin, things like that, for example. But at the same time, the church says, church leaders say that women cannot be ordained by virtue of their physicality, by virtue of their bodies. You know, and the church is not a, so much of Catholic teaching and thinking is not concretistic. It's very much a love of metaphor. And yet it's a very concretistic way of saying why women can't be priests because they can't physically mimic the actions of Jesus. Um, that's one of the key reasons that they use. And so there's been a lot of advocacy over the years. It's still a hot button issue. Um, it's been talked about again, and for the first time at this synod coming up in the fall in October, women actually will be participating and will have a vote. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to ever become priests or bishops, but uh, at least there's some small movement. But um, it's a it's a huge topic. But again, to me, what was interesting is that women's ordination conference, these are feminists who are saying this is a way that we can argue for equality and still maintain our, our Catholicism. Some people would reject that, not only some say doctrinal conservatives within the church, but some feminists would say, even to me, why are you studying feminism within Catholicism when it's such a patriarchal organization? Uh, but so what I'm always interested in is how is it that people can within an institution work to make it, or at least to advocate to make it more inclusive and more egalitarian rather than leaving the institution and you know doing something else. And then the Catholics for choice or choice on abortion, uh, which, of course, is a complex and a different topic again than the other sexual issues. But uh, largely Catholics for choice, you know, their, I suppose, main political relevance within the church was to show that actually, as we know from the data, you know, many women do make recourse to abortion for all kinds of reasons, and uh, including Catholic women. And uh that doesn't mean that this should necessarily be ostracized from the sacraments. Uh, right. So so they were the three groups. And then over the years, I followed up more with the dignity and LGBT issues. So you reference uh, uh, Hirschman's framework uh, of for organizational change, exit voice and loyalty. Exit meaning uh, if I don't like what an organization is doing, I leave it. Voice is I try to make change within the organization. So I advocate for change, which is largely what your study was kind of talking about. And then loyalty, <laughs> as I understand, this one's always the tricky one, but as I understand, you're kind of a, you're a, you know, good, uh, uh, good trooper, but you, you don't, you, you don't, you don't rock the boat. You don't say anything, which <laughs> sounds like, a, I think a lot of what American Catholics are like, is they're like, yeah, we don't agree, but I'm still going to go and I'm not going to say anything. 
Well, I would say yes, and but <laughs> I think there, but most American Catholics are modeling themselves on those who are exercising voice, voice. right? So we mm-hmm. have these we have these activist groups that you've referenced that I've studied. Um, and they are certainly all using voice and remaining loyal. So it's also this, you know, what's you know, you're you're still being right. loyal to the larger tradition, even though you're non-assenting, even though you're disagreeing with some of what the tradition is being put forward as by the leaders at the moment. Uh, and I think you know you make a good point that maybe most American Catholics are just loyal without exerting voice. But certainly, I think we saw in the last twenty years, you know, with Voices of Faithful, and then all the with the sex abuse crisis in the U.S., right. Right. we saw a exit. We've certainly seen a lot of exit. A lot of exit. Yeah. And we see a lot of voice, but it is, a, you're right in the sense that it's more muted voice, but they're still saying at dinner tables, at least, I disagree, but uh, I'm still going. But I think the days of the loyal Catholic, of someone who, uh, you know, as they said, who paid and obeyed, you know, paid their money and obeyed the church, those days ended, you know, in the 70s. What would it mean for the church to become more inclusive, inclusive and more pluralistic. Well, that's I mean that's you know that's in a sense what's happening is that, and certainly with Pope Francis's you know you know these last from the very beginning he's been very clear that he wants the church that is inclusive that it, that really is walking and accompanying people in their everyday lived realities. So on the one hand, yes, there's official church teaching and and theology. But a church, particularly a Catholic church, has to emphasize community. You know, so communion is about the communion of the people. Um, and so I think he has made a lot of efforts, you know, as I've mentioned a little bit earlier, the Synod on the Family, which was really a major survey of the lives and practices of Catholics worldwide. What kinds of family arrangements do they have in all of that complexity? Gay families, single parent families, divorced and remarried families, etc., and now this synod coming up in the fall, which is looking again to create the, the subtitle of that synod is to create a more inclusive church. So I think the fact that the conversation itself from the top down, from the Pope on down, has is talking about these issues so continuously. You know, he consistently talks about these issues. I think that's making a difference. But of course, to actually get from the everyday conversation to actually changing official doctrine is sometimes more complicated. So you can have these, what I call pastoral modifications or tiny, you know, little footnotes along the way to slightly nuance things. But there is a lot, as I think you're aware of, you know, just like in the larger world of politics, there's politics in the church and there's a lot of, you know, doctrinally conservative bishops, some in the US and elsewhere, who, you know, are really pushing back and actually challenging the very authority of the Pope to even do the things that, of course, he's well entitled to do. So in terms of calling these, you know, convening these synods, among other things. Um, But I think ultimately you have to keep moving forward. That would be my view, that you have to keep using voice and to speak honestly about what are the contradictions in the church and, you know, Really going back to the the you know the scriptural you know the, the whole you know Jesus images the whole theology of Jesus is very much non-judgmental right it's inclusion non-judgmental yes you can have ideals but ultimately you have to live in the everyday reality of people's lives and increasingly today the reality is a highly secular reality with a lot of complexity and a lot of pain 
relationships break down, for example. There's all kinds of issues beyond the social, sexual, certainly looking at migrants and refugees and asylum seekers, all the, you know, who is my neighbor? That's a very core Christian, and not just a Christian, but it really is that question at the core of, of, of religious life. Who is my yeah. neighbor and what's my duty to my neighbor? Um, and so, of course, today that is really your neighbor is certainly not just someone on your street. It really is the, the global neighbor. There's so much of global flow. Uh, and so I think the more the church can focus on really trying to create a better society, and that sounds a little utopian, but trying to make people's lives a little more compassionate in the approach that the church gives to them, that that's already helpful. Uh, but I do think having the, the public conversation within the church on these issues to me is powerful because I do believe that by talking, you actually do make progress uh, in at least more people now are hearing, you know, that actually whatever the issue is, that there's differences of opinion. Even that's liberating. Right. It has not just one church opinion on any of the issues we might want to talk about, but that there's variation and nuance among the bishops on any of these issues, among the ordinary Catholics on these issues. And so I think that's itself liberating rather than someone thinking, oh, well, I'm a bad Catholic because my views are so different to everyone else's. Whereas, yeah. in fact, I think throwing fresh air, exposing, you know, the fret, you know, putting the opening the windows to let the air in so people can see that there really is a lot of uncertainty about how to move forward. That itself can actually build strength in the church as an institution rather than the old idea where the church is without error and everything it does is without error. Yeah, I I mean, I um, if you, you know, I'm sure you've read Hirschman's work. And yes. I mean, one of the points he makes is those who exit leave behind the opportunity to try to bring about change and and they and so so that's actually a uh you know those right. who, those who have chose to exit rather than re remain like like the folks who are in dignity and i, I was reading it and i was it, you know the practices uh uh you know just i i kind of kept saying why don't they just go to a nice protestant church and, <laughs> that that's open to the you know that uh, but but it is like you you know you you want you you are committed to something you want it to to be better um, yeah well let me close on a couple of a couple of questions for you kind of broadly about your your study the area you happen to study so I'm curious how has your study of religion shaped the way that you think about religion in your own life. Well, I, I think I, I certainly value religion, and I think. Um... And I value my Catholicism, even though I'm also obviously respectful and I'm tolerant, clearly, and I believe in true religious pluralism. And I think the American society in particular has done a good job at really building a pluralistic society. Uh, I would think that doing my research has actually brought me, in a sense, closer to the church as a tradition, to the Catholic tradition, because I see, like going back to Dignity or Gaze and others, I see how their commitment and how they make it work in a very vibrant and dynamic way. And then I, I also, of course, I'm aware of, you know, going back to in Horse of a Lifetime, the research at the individual level about how religion impacts and spirituality impacts the individual and meaning making. I don't think of religion necessarily as a crutch, but I do value very much the intellectual and the ritualistic and the social aspects of Catholicism. So I think it is a very rich, without privileging Catholicism, just saying I think it has a, I mean, it's became my tradition because I was socialized into it in a highly Catholic country. Yeah. Um, 
but I had very positive experiences of the church growing up. I know that wasn't everyone else's experience, but I had very positive role models of priests, but also of nuns, very strong people, independent, respectful people that I respected greatly and admired. And to me, the, the I, I value social rituals and religious rituals. I mean, whatever, you don't have to have rituals that are tied to a church, but I think Catholic rituals are particularly powerful. And I, I really value its theological tradition and the multiple layers. There's a lot of pluralism within the Catholic tradition. There's a lot of pluralism within any tradition. And I think to me, the more I've studied Catholicism over the years, the more I got to appreciate the multiple strands in a way that I wouldn't have had I not probably, you know, spend time reading so much and, and researching so much on Catholicism. Well, I honestly hadn't thought about the intersection of faith and reason quite as much until I sat down with your your material. So I, so I appreciate that. Do you think religion is important to living a good life in 2023? Well, it it is, but it doesn't have to be. You know, yeah. I think I think you I think you know, I'm a big believer in the post-secular, and that is essentially the interaction of the religious and the sexual, the, the religious and the secular in an everyday basis. Uh, so we live, and I love secular life, and I love secular society, but we see time and again that the secular doesn't have answers to everything. Uh, and so what religion gives is it prods people and prompts people to think beyond reason and beyond the rational, like what's missing. Um, and so many people have very full lives. I mean, I have a very full life. Very, I love my work. I love my family. I have a very supportive life. A very, you know, great life. But to me, religion adds another dimension of appreciation, maybe. Um, so I'm probably trying to evade your question because it's a complicated <laughs> one. But you don't need religion to be moral or to have a meaningful life. But I say mm -hmm. if you have immersion or an identity that has a religious anchor, then I think it's probably going to be a positive influence in your life. Even though I also recognize, as I say that, that many people have suffered because of religion, either in terms of religious persecution or in terms of interpersonal religious based abuse. So last question. What does your discipline of sociology teach about living a good life? How does sociology influence your thinking about what it means to live a good life? Well, I think sociology, first of all, it's not, uh, it's not normative, right? So it's not philosophy. So it's not going to say what is a good life. Uh, so sociology gets at that more indirectly by saying, well, what are all the dimensions of life and how are variables, you know, all these different variables intercorrelated and intersecting. I do think that the great tradition of sociological, classical sociological theorizing, and I'm thinking particularly of, of Max Weber and Emile Durkheim, both of whom actually studied extensively religion, very from very different perspectives, they certainly do ground sociologists in the importance of recognizing religion, even though religion is a very secular discipline. And, you know, I think if you were to do a study of sociologists, particularly in the US and certainly in Europe, very, only a minority of them uh, would, would be feeling any way sympathetic to religion. In fact, many of them might feel awkward about religion. Um, 
even though secularization is a key part of our discipline, but I think because it's a key part of a, a key concept, people assume that secularization has happened and so we can move beyond religion. Whereas in fact, what the post-secular shows both intellectually, but also in terms of empirical data, that the religious and the secular coexist and need one another in a sense. And I make the case, going back to my most recent book, is yeah. that Pope Francis, regardless of your religion, that he really truly can be and is a post-secular figure because his his statements on equality, his on social justice, economic equality, and certainly on climate change, they're so they're actually sociologically very rich, but they really are guidelines for how we as a society, as a global society, could create a morally more inclusive, more humane, and more ecologically sensitive world. Uh, so that to me is an example of a, or he's to me is an example of an of a post-secular leader, a post-secular figure. Um, so I don't think I answered that question very well among the good oh, life and sociology. But, yeah. uh, so it's a tool maybe, because right? it's yes. not normative. It's a way of looking at the world. Yes, um, it's a conceptual and, and research. Well, a tool seems a little tools, deprecating. Tools, yeah, I, yeah, say right. it's I don't want to call yeah, economics <laughs> is a tool, I guess. You know, yeah, I mean, economics a is a tool, but sociology is a whole worldview. I mean, it's such a beautiful infrastructure of theory and multiple research methods that you can bring to bear as, mm -hmm. you, as you tackle whatever the phenomenon is that you're trying to make sense of. Michelle, thank you so much for your time today. It's been awesome. Thank you, Mark. This was great. Thank you. I appreciate your time and the conversation. Thanks for listening to Flourishing in the World. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, won't you share it with a friend and leave us a rating wherever you might be listening. Until next time, this is Mark Bonica, willing good for all of you.